Hi, I'm Raphael Honigstein, and you're listening to the Bavarian Podcast Works. Hello and welcome in to yet another episode, yet another triumphant episode, if you will, of Bavarian Podcast Works. I'm Jake Fenner. I am happy to be here. As always, maybe even more happy after recent results, I am joined, as always, by my brother-in-arms, Tom Adams. Tom, how are you doing today? I'm doing fantastic. Right now, it's uh, Wednesday evening, just got home from soccer, bagged myself a hattie, and route to a 10-4 win in my 7v7 league. So that's all good and well. And also, back to talk about two more Bayern Munich wins, which is always an added bonus. Let's keep this ball rolling. Let's keep the good vibes going. Good vibes only. Hashtag, let's keep going. So today, we will be talking about Bayern's 3-0 thrashing over Chelsea in the Champions League on Wednesday, and also kind of touch on everything else in the Champions League. Then we get into the newsroom where we talk about birthday celebrations, strikers tearing ligaments and or getting injured, and then, of course, we all get to laugh at Manchester City's expense. But first, we need to talk about the Bundesliga game that came this Friday against Paderborn, the result nobody saw coming. A 3-2 win for Bayern, but it was a lot closer than we all might have liked. Let's start off in the 25th minute. Serge Gnabry scores a goal to make it 1-0. It was poked into the box by Tolisso, right to Serge's feet. He fights off defenders. He's shoving them away. He's making sure that they don't get anywhere near the ball, and he tucks it into the bottom corner. 1-0 Bayern. Then in the 44th minute, Servini scores for Paderborn. Assist Manuel Neuer on this goal because after two previous successful attempts of coming way too far off of his line to clear the ball like he's apt to do. He does it yet again a third time, but he can't get a foot or a chest or any part of his body to it at all to clear it away. Serbini is able to dribble it around him and then basically just take his time, waddle into the box, and score on an open net. 1-1 for the game at halftime. 70th minute. This is where all of the hype comes, where the more excitable action happens. 70th minute, Robert Lewandowski scores. It was a deflection ball long to Serge Gnabry, who is patient and allows for Louis to come late into the box for a clean finish to make it 2-1, but not five minutes later. Paderborn's Yastrzemski, no relation to the Boston Red Sox player, makes a long run, takes a shot. It's saved by Neuer, but on that rebound, it is cleaned up by Paderborn's Michelle, who finishes it easily to add some pressure onto Bayern with just a couple of minutes to go. But in the 88th minute, the dying seconds, some link-up play on the wings from Davies to Gnabry results in a low cross from Serge right onto an oncoming Robert Lewandowski to make it 3-2, and that is how the game ends. Bayern stay on top, Paderborn stay at the very bottom of the table. Tom... I think a question that I kept asking myself was this Paderborn team is not good enough to warrant the kind of fear that they ended up giving Bayern. Do you think that this team got outplayed or do you just think that we underestimated this opponent? Well, I don't think there's an element really of Bayern underestimating Paderborn. I think a lot of it had to do with... If you're Stefan Bumgart coming into this game, you're well aware that both uh, Jerome Boateng and Benjamin Pavard are not going to be involved because of yellow card suspension. So that um, gave Hansi Flick some difficult tactical decisions that he had to make. And obviously, as it turns out, we went out with this kind of um, hybrid 3-4-2-1 with Kimmich Alaban and Luca Hernandez as like a back three with uh, Odrio Zola and uh, Alfonso Davies on either flank as like wing backs, um, which, which is kind of bizarre, uh, especially for Odrio Zola, who's naturally a, a right back. Um, and then Tuliso and Thiago in that uh, center of the park midfield uh, double pivot, if you will, with Gnabry, Coutinho, and obviously Lewandowski ahead of him. So I think Baumgart would have made a point of knowing where Bayern's weaknesses were going to be and knowing that Hansi Flick had to kind of tweak the tactics. And if you look at a lot of Paderborn's results this season, one thing is glaringly obvious. They don't have any trouble scoring goals. They just concede 
lots and lots of goals. And a lot of times, uh, as Joshua Kimmich had alluded to um, speaking to press after this game, giving Paderborn a lot of credit uh, for the courageous way they performed at the Allianz Arena, they make a lot of mistakes at the back. What I noticed actually, so Gnabry's goal and Lewandowski's first goal, literally the um, sequences of play come as a result of Paderborn taking one too many touches in the back um, or in the midfield in those half spaces. And then a couple passes later, Bayern have a shot on target. And obviously those two, which I've just mentioned, went in. Uh, only Bayern's third goal, Lewandowski's second, was one that was created uh, from open play, all from Bayern's doing, I believe. Uh, someone had played in a clever pass to Thiago. Thiago drops a shoulder, makes a yard of space for himself, plays it into Gnabry. Um, and as we know, um, he played it for Lewandowski, who played in the winner. But Again, so much of Paderborn's play, they really love to play on the counterattack with pacey guys like Antwi Ajay, uh, as you mentioned, the goal scorer, Saberni, uh, Mamba, Kai Proger on the other flank opposite Antwi Ajay. So much of their positive play comes from counterattack. It's obvious that they're going to, most of the teams that they play against in the Bundesliga, especially away from home, they're going to sit in very, very condensed, deep blocks, not a lot of spaces between those lines, um, and spring forward as soon as they can. And I think... Arguably, uh, the first goal they scored, you could say that's more of just Manuel Neuer making an error. It kind of looked like he got to the ball first, but he was more worried about perhaps not taking out the player instead of actually just clearing the ball and going through, um, and then he slotted it home. But uh, their their second opportunity, which led to their second goal from Sven Mikel in the 75th minute, all from a counterattack. Neuer makes a decent save on the first one, but it's very on the first attempt rather in that sequence of play. But it's very difficult to steer that away from where um, Mikel was just absolutely baying in for the rebound, and he and he slotted it home, made life very uncomfortable and very difficult for Bayern in the closing stages. But yeah, so I think it's just an element of of Bumgart knowing exactly where could he where he could expose those weaknesses uh, from Bayern from those uh, excuse me those changes that they had to make. Um, I think it's kind of not, I wouldn't say glaringly obvious, but it's definitely worth mentioning that when we don't have a natural number six in that midfield, uh, or I should say the center of midfield, it does kind of complicate things for us. I do think uh, Tolisso did a decent job uh, taking advantage of a rare opportunity that was given to him. Obviously, he's not as much of a six as Kimmich would be when he's in the center of midfield, but I thought he did a decent job working on both sides of the ball, um, both offensively and defensively, getting up and down the pitch, especially with a guy like Thiago, who, as we know, uh, more and more recently has been playing more offensively uh, to great effect, I should say. But yeah, job well done to Paderborn. I think they should hold their heads high uh, after this performance. It definitely didn't do them any favors that uh, Holtman, the starting left back, had to come off injured in the first half. I'm sure Bumgart uh, <laughs> was not planning for that. Um, and I do actually have to give a special shout-out. I know that uh, some people who have been uh, a part of the BFW community reading us for quite some time, they know that uh, I kind of have a connection, connection excuse me, to uh, Paderborn. My boss, his brother, is uh, one of the team doctors on, on Paderborn, and he actually traveled with the, uh, the team to the Allianz Arena and Early on, um, there was an incident where Coutinho had kind of slipped and fallen. I tried to go back and uh, rewatch the clip. I can't exactly identify which Paderborn player it is, but he basically slipped uh, and hit the Paderborn player in the face. And um, Dr. Lutz Malky, along with another physio, went out and assessed him. So he got his, uh, <laughs> you know, three to four minutes of fame on Fox Soccer Plus, which is what the uh, the match was on. In the U.S., so shout out to him. And I've heard from my boss that uh, after the game, he got a pat on the back from Manuel Neuer. So he's uh, something of legend in his household now. So that's very awesome. Special shout out to him. Uh, if you haven't read it, back in 2018, we interviewed him ahead of Bayern's, believe it was quarterfinal, Day Bay Pokal clash against SC Paderborn. So congratulations to him. That's an awesome opportunity. It was really cool to see him on live television at the Allianz Arena. And with that, we're going to take a break. And when we get back, we will touch on this week's Champions League fixture against Chelsea. Welcome back. And now we get to the highlight of my week, the best part of my week, when I decided to go ahead and skip three of my classes and go to the local beer garden to watch Bayern whip Chelsea 3-0. The first half had no goal scoring at all, but it was kind of 
clear from the moment the ball kicked off that Bayern really came into London how to play. They went into London knowing that they dominate there almost every single time that they go. If you want any more evidence of that, see Tottenham earlier this year. But they came out in the first half. They controlled a lot of possession. They put a lot of shots on net. And some of them came really close, including a Thomas Muller header, which for some reason he kind of went up a little too cutesy. He tried to head the ball with the back of his head, and it went off of the goalpost. If he tried to make a better, a more decent effort at that, that could have been 1-0 pretty early. But alas, we went into the half tied at nil-nil. But it didn't take long for Bayern to open the score sheet after the second half kicked off. 51st minute, a Robert Lewandowski run was met by Serge. Louis just served it up on a platter, easily converted it in by Serge Gnabry. 1-0 to open the scoring just a couple of minutes into the first half. Then, three minutes later, another great Lewandowski pass finds an oncoming Serge Gnabry. He takes a shot with his left foot one time, curls it across the open mouth of the goal. It hits the right post on the inside and trickles in to make it 2 to nothing. And then in the 76th minute, Alfonso Davies proved yet again that he is one of the best players on this Bayern Munich team, one of the most exciting players ever. He takes a deflected ball from inside of his own half and just takes off, makes five defenders look like absolute children out on that field and just sends a ball across to Lewandowski, who converts it, but that goal was pretty much all of the work of Alfonso Davies. And then we would normally be done, but Marcos Alonso got a red card in this match in the 83rd minute, so he won't be seeing any action in this next fixture. Also of note, Jorginho accumulated a yellow card, and because he had a yellow card in a previous match in the Champions League, he will not be seeing action in the second leg back in Munich. So 3-0, the final score. Just dominance from beginning to end, Tom, and I just have to ask, was this Bayern's best performance of the year? I think it's definitely up there easily in their top five performances of this season, and you almost feel bad. And the only reason I say almost is because I absolutely hate Chelsea being a Bayern and a Liverpool fan. But you do almost feel bad for them because, quite honestly, I think that uh, 3-0 even perhaps flatters Chelsea a little bit, even though it was the first leg at the Stamford Bridge uh, in their in their own park. And, you know, if you really try to go back and you know, psychoanalyze and assess where Chelsea had their chances. The one I can remember maybe one half chance in the second half where Mason Mount had a had a shot that Neuer easily collected that didn't have much pace on it. And then obviously there was that Marcus Alonso shot in the first half that Neuer did well to get down and deny, especially with the amount of bodies that were in between uh, Alonso and uh, the six-yard box. But yes, this was just a complete team performance from Bayern. 100%. I would say that almost everyone in the starting lineup, uh, aside from Kingsley Coman, had you know a, a terrific performance. And you can't even really fully blame Coman because he's still coming back from injury. He's probably one of the worst players when it comes to luck, injury luck. He just seems that he gets six, seven, eight matches under his belt, and then he gets another injury setback. But one of the things I love the most about this game, especially with Bayern being the way team, just how how strong we came out of the gates, just absolutely suffocating Chelsea, who are obviously going to try and play out of the back in their own park. And I just thought we were running absolute circles around Jorginho, uh, Mateo Kovacic. I thought that they were well off of their best, and then I thought it trying kind of forced uh, both Reese James, Mason Mount, Ross Barkley to try and do a lot of things on their own and just kind of wound up dribbling to nowhere. Bayern would win possession in great positions and just the passing was so quick and so sharp. Uh, the one two-touch passing, I, I think it was just fantastic from Bayern Munich and then also those second phases when Bayern would lose the ball, the counter-pressing was just so good. There were so many times when Bayern lost the ball either in their own half or deep into Chelsea's half and we would win the ball back after Chelsea had one, one possession. Um, and I just think that's part of that flicky flock, if you will, that flick effect um, where those uh, those spaces between the lines have gotten much, much tighter 
on both sides of the ball. So, for example, when we're in attack, the midfield and the attacking lines very close together, not a lot of space between the lines. Um, and on the other end of the coin, when we're de- defensively, not a lot of space in between those de- def- defensive and midfield lines. And when you're working as a unit like that, it makes it so difficult for the opponent to find any space to do anything with other than playing, you know, conservative lateral or back backwards passes. Um, and it's almost bizarre. It's going into halftime with the amount of chances that Bayern had and the complete dominance that that Bayern put forth. It's like you're almost like, how the hell is this match still nil nil? You know, it could easily be one or two nil or at least maybe even three nil right now with all of the chances that we had. And, you know, you're kind of worried in the back of your mind. Did we miss our chances as Bayern have often done throughout the season, both domestically and in Europe? And then we just come out and kick it up yet another gear in the second half. And as you mentioned, all of the goals, as I was just speaking of those quick one, two passes, we were just waiting for that one opening moment. I do think perhaps uh, Byron got a little bit lucky. I think it was Cesar Aspiliqueta who took a little bit of a slip uh, when Abri took down that long ball and then uh, played it into space uh, before getting it back and before, excuse me, being found by Lewandowski and putting it home. But if that's the little sparking moment that we needed, then that was it. Uh, if it wasn't going to be that moment, it was going to be a different one, and the goals were just going to keep coming. Echoing your earlier point about, like, not wanting to be, like, too happy, right, at Chelsea's expense, like, I don't want to rub it into any Chelsea fans' faces either, but, I mean... If your team's social media is running things like a quiz of can you guess where every penalty from the 2012 Champions League final shootout went, you're kind of asking for it. (laughs) I'm not going to feel sad for you at all. You're kind of asking for it. Now let's move on to more fun things. Alfonso Davies. We've talked about him a lot on this podcast, and it's it's all perfectly deserved, in my opinion, because... I've been following this team for a long time, and I've had a lot of fun watching Bayern Munich games very often. And I don't recall, outside of maybe Thomas Muller, I can't recall the amount of times that I've been in just, I've felt absolute joy watching Alfonso Davies just embarrass people running up and down the pitch. Like, I had said on the uh, We Ain't Got No Podcast episode that we did that I don't think there's any human being in the world outside of Usain Bolt that can beat Alfonso Davies in a foot race, and this game just proved that because there were at least three or four times where he just ran people down on recovery runs, 15, 20-yard recovery runs. He was so far out of position in terms of being a left back, but he knew that he could just easily overtake anybody that he wants to because he is so freakishly fast. He is so fun to watch. He is amazing on the ball. He's amazing off the ball. He makes some great runs in attacking position. He could probably be a left wing back if we ever decided to go back to that three in the back formation that we saw against Paderborn. And... Hatterborn. And it kind of just has me ask a question, right? It was brought up by Fox's Stu Holden and me five minutes before Stu Holden tweeted it out. Am I saying that Stu Holden stole my tweet? No, of course not. But important questions have to be asked, and we're kind of in the middle of one right now. We're talking about a man who is a natural left winger. Is he one of the best and most world-class left backs in the world as of right now because to me my answer is yes because outside of Andrew Robertson I don't know if there's any left back in the world that I would choose over Alfonso Davies and that's a real testament to him in terms of wanting to be a part of this team wanting to contribute to this team as much as possible committing to that change of left wing to left back and just stepping up in the biggest way and not only stepping up but thriving in the current role that he's been given tom you're a liverpool fan you have alfonso davies you have andrew robertson who do you take first off i will say i will 100 percent agree with you as far as davies 
And by the way, we have to tell the British press it is Alfonso Davies. It's not Davis. Davies, not Davis. I swear to God, I tweeted at Derek Ray in the middle of the uh, in the middle of the game. I was asking him why do they keep saying Davis and not Davies and. While he didn't reply to that earlier or later on in the day, he ended up uh, retweeting what our uh, our boss John Dillon had tweeted via our Twitter account, and he said, "I passed this along to a bunch of my UK colleagues, and it annoys me that uh, people don't pronounce his name right." And I saw a lot of comments underneath saying, "Like the typical British pronunciation is Davies." Well, guess what? He's Canadian. He's not British. So pronounce his name right and accurately. Sorry for interrupting, Tom. But go no, that's absolutely spot on. And it's one of those things where normally, you know, like guys like BT Sport uh, from Sky Sports, they do a fantastic job. Um, I know there is chatter, though. They perhaps, um, I know we joke about it in our Slack channel. We're not actually genuinely serious, serious about it. Um, perhaps a little bit of a bias 100% to the Premier League teams that are in Europe and not giving... Uh, the Bundesliga sides uh, enough credit and and showing a completely biased to their opponents, you know. So the fact that they're just butchering Alfonso Davies' name um, is just a little little bit of rubbing salt into a tiny wound. But again, we'll just let his performances speak for themselves because it kind of echoes the fact that one of the reasons why I do think he is one of the top five, he does all of that hard work, is one of the fastest players in Europe without a doubt. And he does it, he will figuratively just put his head down, go out, do the job for you. It's absolutely rare if you can even find any actual instance of him being selfish. He's always looking for a teammate, looking for someone who's making that run, timing that run perfectly as he bombs forward down the left flank. Poetry in motion. You know, he just never is making the selfish option and will always do a job for you won't ask questions and especially as a young guy it's very easy to let your emotions and to let the big occasions get to you and it doesn't seem that it's affecting him at all and, and not only that like if you are on TikTok or any social media platform he is just like a social media god like of all the footballers in Europe he is 100% up there in the top 10 top 5 like everything he does is Twitter gold or TikTok gold Instagram you name it he does it all it's oftentimes very hilarious especially when he makes fun of all of the other Bayern players and what they do when they score goals and their mannerisms it's absolutely awesome you can't not love the guy even if you absolutely hate Bayern I gotta agree he's an amazing social media follow and you gotta continue to follow him if you don't already elsewhere across Europe let's start off with the German teams because there's a great point that I saw on Twitter that I want to make. Borussia Dortmund are up on PSG 2-1 after their first leg. Leipzig are up 1-0 on Tottenham after their first leg, inspiring Jose Mourinho to say the phrase to the phenomenal Aaron West, great reporter from formerly Copa 90 and Fox. He now works with Bleacher Report. Mourinho said to him, I have a gun with no bullets when talking about his team and how tired they are. Bayer Leverkusen beat Porto 2-1 in their first leg of the round of 32 of the Europa League. Eintracht Frankfurt win against RB Salzburg 4-1, and Wolfsburg beat Malmo 2-1. And there's this tweet from the account at FussballTwit, which I find hilarious of a name, and I will also agree that you are a FussballTwit because you're a Dortmund fan. He said, Farmers League 14, Europe 4. Because the combined score lines of all of the German teams' games mean that they outscore the rest of Europe 14-4, to which is a great thing to see. Not only as a Bayern fan, even though because they are all rivals, but as a true German soccer fan. It's great to know that this league, that's probably one of the best leagues in the world, I would easily say top three, that is often so derided for being a easy league that nobody else can really win other than Bayern Munich well. Maybe they're really good in Europe because they have to deal with playing against us all the time, or maybe it's because they're actually good teams with great players, and it just shows in things like that. Otherwise, the European tables stand like this. Atletico Madrid beating Liverpool at the Metropolitano 1-0. Sorry to rub that again. In your face, 
Tom. Atalanta's miracle is staying alive. A 4-1 win for them at the San Siro. It's important to note that because Atalanta are from the same province of Italy as the Milan clubs, but Unfortunately, their stadium was deemed too small by UEFA. They had to move to Milan to play that game 4-1. A team that wasn't really playing a home game, but was playing a home game, is destroying Valencia right now. They have a very good chance to advance to the next round. It is all even in Italy for Barcelona after a 1-1 draw with Napoli. So Barcelona gets to take that one goal, away goal advantage Back to the new camp. CR7 loses 1-0 in Lyon to Olympique, and that's a great thing to see, but not as great as Real Madrid blowing a 1-0 lead at the Bernabeu to Manchester City. Because as much as I hate Manchester City, there is nothing that tastes better to me than the tears of Real Madrid fans. I love that result. Penalty taken by Kevin De Bruyne made it 2-1, and even more beautiful than that, the most schadenfreude thing in the world, Sergio Ramos gets a red card, and he won't be able to play in the second leg at the Etihad Stadium. It's a great thing to see. Real have a very good chance of getting knocked out now, and I might have just jinxed it, may have gotten a little bit too far ahead of myself, but hey, what can I say? I watched that game in the middle of a Spanish class, and I tried so hard not to just start grinning from ear to ear. It was one of the toughest things I have had to do. So taking a look at all of these fixtures, Tom, what stands out to you? Who do you think has a good chance of coming back? And uh, what are some uh, upsets that you think might happen? First and foremost, I have to celebrate. As I've mentioned to you many, many times before, my two least favorite teams are playing one another. So it's just brilliant. It is just a symphony of brilliance that both Man City and Real Madrid are playing one another, and especially in the fashion that it happened. Ramos, probably one of the defenders I dislike the most, a la 2018 Champions League Final C incident with Mohamed Salah. He doesn't take him out in that game. I think we win uh, that Champions League Final in Kiev, but I digress. No surprise that he got a red card for just taking out Jesus. The fact that he's looking at the ref like, why are you, why are you thinking of giving me a red card? Just typifies the type of player he is. Never have liked him. He's always going to make those dirty challenges, try and get into your head. Yes, he's a world-class defender, but I've never liked that part of his game. One of these teams is going to go out, and it'll just be hilarious to see Man City pro keep progressing and then not have their appeal work and get that two-year ban in Europe um, and then crash out in the semis or perhaps even lose the final. That would just be hilarious now, wouldn't it? And Real Madrid getting knocked out. And other than that, I will just continue my bashing on La Liga because the 1-0 at the Wanda Metropolitano, the first time Liverpool were back there since lifting the 2019 Champions League title, was just one of those things. Diego Simeone and his dark arts of La Liga, they get that early goal off a lucky deflection from a corner kick. Fabinho just hits the ball in his heel, pops right to Saul. Anyone would have tapped that in. Not really a big deal. And then after that, the embellishing, the diving, the complaining to the referee, the dirty tricks. Is it a surprise that a La Liga team is doing this? Absolutely not. But um, all I'm going to say is Anfield, it's only halftime. You still got to come there. Let's see if you try to employ the same tactics there. Um, but other than that, um, just to echo off, I don't think anyone would have expected um, the aggregate in each respective match to be what it is in Napoli-Barca 1-1 and Lyon-Juventus 1-0 in favor of Lyon. What I found very interesting about that, both Napoli and Lyon were the home teams, and they both completely, because of who their opponents were, almost completely set up uh, and played like uh, away sides because they knew for large stretches of the match, they would have to sit down and be defensively organized. And I thought Napoli did it to great effect. And Trace Mertens with a fantastic, fantastic uh, right-footed effort from the corner of the box to give Napoli that goal. And a very, very oddly um, 
amazing celebration with uh, Lorenzo Insigne. I'm not really quite sure what that dance was with the tongue out, but if you haven't seen it, uh, go take a look. It's also hilarious that they, every time they have the Champions League, like uh, after the players walk out and they're playing the anthem, they stick a really tall mascot next to Insigne, who's not very tall at all. He's maybe 5'6", and I don't, I honestly don't know if UEFA does it on purpose or it's just like a hilarious coincidence, but every time I see it, I just like die laughing that the tallest mascot is standing next to <laughs> the shortest player. You know, both Trace Mertens and uh, Insigne are not tall guys at all, and they always wind up with tall mascots, uh, and it's just hilarious, but you know, it's also amazing. The Stadio San Paolo, to me, if I ever do travel to Europe, would be one of the venues I would love to go to on a European night. I mean, it is crazy when they play the Champions League anthem and all the fans in there are just yelling, Champions! There's so many uh, clips on social media of like people who are outside the venue. You can hear it um, and inside. Definitely check that out. I mean, that's what it's all about. That's what this competition is all about. You know, the beauty and the magic of European nights. Um Will be interesting, you know, uh, Barcelona picking up that red card on the return leg to the new camp. Um, Vidal with a little bit too heavy of a, of a challenge. Griezmann just had to sneak in that away goal. Very, very marginal offside decision, but he was, uh, I believe it was Semedo who played him. The ball uh, was just marginally onside, but that one is brilliantly poised. That's going to be one of the ones um, I'm watching as also as someone who watched a fair amount of Napoli in the group stages because they were in Liverpool's group, uh, be very uh, excited to see them knock out Barcelona. Basically, just all these La Liga teams would just go away. I would absolutely love it. That would be awesome. And obviously, Valencia don't have that great of a chance, but uh, but we'll see. I, uh, I hope that they all get knocked out and that um, Bayern get another three, goal, three goals, four goals at the Allianz Arena and just absolutely batter Chelsea out of the competition. And with that, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we will get into the newsroom and a couple of important topics that we need to cover over the last couple of weeks. And we're back, and we hop into the newsroom, and we're going to start off with a little bit of some happy news. We get to celebrate two big birthdays that come up this week. Thursday, the day that this podcast is going to come out, Bayern Munich is officially celebrating the fact that they turn 120 years old. It's been a great 120 years for the club, and they've done that by releasing a special edition kit it's not sure whether or not that it will be game-worn. The club has not said anything about it yet. Uh, it, if you haven't seen it, I highly recommend either going to the club shop and checking it out or checking out our edition covering it of Bavarian Fashion Works, which, uh, Tom, I'm pretty sure you're the one that goes ahead and writes those, but... It's a weird-looking kit. Like, it's white with maroon sleeves and maroon shorts, but, like, all of the... Like, in all of the white parts, like, the Adidas logo, the Deutsche Telekom logo, and the Bayern logo are all white. And on the red parts, their logos are also, like, red. It doesn't really make sense to me. Tom, uh, what do you think of it? Uh, I mean... I think it's a very cool, like, modernized look on a kit that's obviously celebrating the early 1900s and 1920s, um, you know, in the era when the club was first formed. Um, and it's basically one of the only main differences is the modernized, like, cuffs on the sleeves. Um, and obviously back then the fabric was much different and the sleeves went down, like, really far. And then they had those, um, I'm not even quite sure what you would call them, uh, but, like, the the really loose collars with, like, the low cuts and then the string that you would use to, like, tighten tighten the collar. But obviously, um, Bayern have released kits in the past that you can buy on their, uh, their official website where you can legitimately buy uh, a replica of that. You know, it's the same material, and it has that, um, that weird neck with the... Um, the string collar, but they've just went with an ordinary, uh, regular collar, standard collar with the, you know, that dark red color and then the white ring, um, on the outside. And I think more, more of this just has to do with celebrating the history than it does, uh, being anything flashy. You know, it's all obviously a very, uh, it's always very interesting when they try and do like a modern take on, on a very traditional look, 
Um, and actually, I do believe um, when this had first come out, when the initial images of the potential design came out on footy headlines, they did say, I think the um, the match, the next Bavarian derby, a Bayern Augsburg, I th- it's not, um, it's af- uh, March 8th, uh, two weeks time. Uh, Bayern Augsburg at the Allianz Arena. I believe they said that they were going to sport these, and I'm sure Augsburg for that would just wear like an away kit, or I don't, I'm not sure if they have uh, like a Bavarian throwback kit of their own that they might sport, but uh, I believe that they're going to showcase those uh, on that game uh, on March 8th. So that would be cool to see um, the players sporting a, uh, a very historical kit with a modern twist, and I, I got to say... I'm always a fan of it, just more of uh, from the aspect of sentimentality. Um, I, I just think it's very cool when they try to celebrate the history and, you know, put a modern look on it. And part of what I enjoy, it's just like so basic, you know, it doesn't like, yes, we have the modern kit now, uh, both the home away and the third strip. So much of it is um, celebrating that unique outer shell that's on the Allianz Arena and the color screen, color scheme. You know, it's one of the only venues uh, in Europe, across the world, that looks like that. But, you know, celebrating the roots, celebrating the history, just the very basic, um, the throwback badge that was uh, used for the club in the early days. Uh, it's just very cool, very basic. Um, but, you know, there's so much behind it. So, yeah, I, I, I quite enjoy it. I don't know if I'm going to purchase one myself, but perhaps if any of my friends or loved ones out there are listening a uh, a, a gift this could be a, a good gift idea if you're listening. Maybe please, please definitely buy it for me so I don't I don't give more of my money to Bayern Munich. <laughs> They're running about $99 there, Tom. Oof. And if uh, Richie or anybody else at the uh, FC Bayern US office is listening to this one, I hope you guys are. Uh, if you could maybe swing us one of those to give away, uh, we would appreciate that. Uh, the other birthday that we get to celebrate is our dear beloved manager, Hansi Flick. He turned 55 the other day. Right after the great win against Chelsea, there was a team banquet, and KHR decided to gift him a pen, along with a very interesting statement saying, quote, sometimes we sign papers at this club. That kind of lends itself to an idea of either A, Hansi's going to be signing a lot of contracts over the summer, or B, he might be signing a contract of his own. That could be very possible. Tom, what do you think of that idea of Hansi signing a more long-term deal. To me, I can't imagine another manager that has gone out and made the impact on this Bayern team, at least since Jopankis, that Hansi has. This team really looks like they're playing free-flowing football that they all love to play. And to me, I think Hansi is so incredibly deserving of an extension. Yeah, if you look at where we were at, when Niko Kovac left and Hansi Flick stepped in, I believe it was seventh place. Seventh place in the, the Bundesliga coming off of that 5-1 uh, thrashing at the hands of Eintracht Frankfurt. Uh, and just looking at where we're at now, dominant performances in Europe, up 3-0 in the round of 16 against Chelsea, back on top of the Bundesliga table. We've I don't know exactly what our uh, goal difference is under Hansi Flick, but it's obvious we've scored way more goals than we've conceded and as you mentioned we've found a lineup that works he's got all of the players believing um i don't know why there would be unless there's a an available coach that's working or that's already speaking with byron's front office you know unbeknownst to us that clearly ticks all of the boxes and has that vast experience uh both in domestic leagues in europe and in european competition I don't see any reason why we won't just stick with what works. And yeah, that red pen that he gave him <laughs> for the for signing papers, quote unquote. You wonder if that's you know uh, Rumaniga having a little bit of fun uh, with the press and you know the the staff and the players at the banquet after such a dominant performance, or if that's literally him being direct. There's always those discrepancies with um, German to English translations, and you know taking it. Uh, in context versus out of context, but uh, you also wonder. I mean, I, I mean, <laughs> did they just finish a team boat race? If you know what that is, after <laughs> before Rumaniga had said that, or you know, uh, was the beer flowing? You know, what was it? But 
yeah, again, I mean, I think Rumenigas basically just uh, <laughs> a slight element of seriousness, but um, I don't think it was meant to be taken uh, directly. But my opinion, I, I don't see why there's any reason why they should not be seriously considering considering uh, extending uh, Hansi Flick at least past um, this summer, like I said, and, unless there's a legitimate uh, top-tier coach that um, – is already speaking with our front office, you know, on the back burner. And speaking of some serious things, there was some major injury news that came out on Wednesday morning. Robert Lewandowski will be out for four weeks with an injury to his leg. Now, taking a look ahead at the schedule, there are some big games that Lewandowski misses that fall within that four-week timeline. A game in the Bundesliga at Hoffenheim, a game in the Pokal, at Schalke, the Derby, the Bavarian Derby at home against Augsburg, a game away to Union Berlin, and then home in the Champions League against Chelsea for that second leg. He could possibly return on Sunday the 22nd for a game against Eintracht Frankfurt. Worst case, he's back just in time for Der Klassiker at Borussia Dortmund. So... It kind of just lends itself to the question of who is going to replace him. Now, you can go ahead and look deep within Bayern's reserves. There's not really a striker that really stands out to replace Robert Lewandowski. You look at names like Jan Fita Arp. He had been injured for a majority of the year. He's only had an assist in five games for FC Bayern 2 down in the Dreiliga. Now, meanwhile, Joshua Zerksi has been sitting on the Bayern bench for a little while. Four goals and three assists across 19 Bundesliga and Dry Liga appearances. But interesting enough, as we're in the middle of recording this podcast, a tweet came out from friend of the pod, Derek Ray, saying, Kicker reporting the likeliest short-term solution to Byron's Lewandowski problem will be Serge Gnabry as a central striker. Thomas Muller viewed too important on the right or off the front. Xerxes not ready tactically for demands of starting. He's seen more as a sub. So, Two questions for you, Tom. First, does this basically eliminate him from breaking Gerd Muller's record and maybe even the uh, Torjäger canon as the top scorer in the Bundesliga? And who do you think Bayern is going to turn to? Do you agree with Derek that they're going to go with Gnabry, or do you see a different option on this Bayern bench? Uh, unfortunately, I mean, we've written extensively about Lewandowski being in the best form of his life at 31 years of age and being on pace currently to either equal or break uh, Gerd Muller's uh, single-season record of 40 goals in a season. But with the amount of games he's going to miss, it does kind of seem like it's going to be very unlikely, and especially with Timo Werner breathing down his neck. I, th I believe the race right now is 25, Lewandowski and 21, um, Timo Werner, and then... Sancho and I, I believe a few other people are, are below him um, and the next highest is like 12 or 11 or something like that but yeah I mean especially if, if Timo Werner is going to keep playing like he's playing and scoring at the rate he's scoring I think that he's definitely going to give Lewandowski a run for his money and it wouldn't surprise me if Werner has caught up to Lewandowski by the time Lewandowski makes his return as you mentioned either um, against Eintracht Frankfurt in that home game or the Third, technically, installment of Der Klassiker in April. Um, the first match in April, I should say, at the Westfalenstadion. And that one could prove to be a very, very integral uh, match in terms of the title race. But, you know, if, if you were to ask him, he would say, yes, Gerd Muller's record, you know, either equaling it or breaking it would be nice. But he's just going to be focused on performing for the team, doing what he can to make sure that Bayern secure their uh the Bundesliga title and go as far as they can in the DFB Pokal uh, and the Champions League. Um, then to answer your second question, um, what Derek Ray had said, um, you said the report for, was from Kicker. Uh, 
I believe that does make the most sense. Uh, playing Gnabry as that striker or as the quote-unquote false nine. You know, that's something he's done often before in his time, both at Bayern um, and at Werder Bremen. I think he possesses the ability to play more central. And I do agree with that. You know, Thomas Muller, I think since Flick has taken charge, he has shown how effective he can be um, in that center attacking role just behind Lewandowski or um, Gnabry if he's going to be the main striker or even wide. There's a lot of people that would tell you, oh, Muller can't play wide. He's not as effective, especially if you have Gnabry and Coman and Coutinho available and fit. But um, Muller has shown his worth, and I think that it's very integral to the structure of the squad that Muller play behind the striker, whether it's wide um, or centrally. And then also, you know, you mentioned Fita Arp. He's not even in the Champions League squad, so he wouldn't be able to um, play in the second leg against Chelsea. Or I don't know. I don't even know if you can. I don't think you can resubmit the squad. So um, he would be a miss for those. And he's just had so much struggles with injuries this season. The hashtag Arp train has not been moving very fast, unfortunately. Um, you know, and he hasn't even played that much for uh, Bayern's reserves because of his injury problems. But, um, yeah, so that that makes the most sense. I mean, logically speaking, that's really the only option that makes the most sense or seems possible, especially going down the stretch with all these important matches, as you mentioned, coming up. So I would have no problem with Gnabry playing as that, that central striker and then uh, Muller, Coman, Coutinho occupying those spaces. Um, as attacking players behind uh, Gnabry. And then, um, yeah, Xerxes has shown that he can come on and give us some late heroics. So um, he might wind up getting some time as a substitute as well. So we'll have to see what happens. And then hopefully Lewandowski's recovery goes smoothly uh, and swimmingly, and he's back uh, on time for that Dare Classicer in the beginning of April. So quickly before we move on to the next thing, ignoring the Schalke match in the Pokal, because as we all know, the Cup has its own rules, and ignoring that matchup against Chelsea, let's also say and assume that he won't be back for Eintracht. We have games at Hoffenheim, home against Augsburg, at Union, and I believe home against Eintracht. How do you think Bayern will perform in those matchups in the Bundesliga? With the way that Flick has the team playing as a team, I yes, we're losing a prolific striker, one of the best in the world right now, if not the best natural number nine, but I think that um, Flick will have it figured out. He'll put the right system in place. Um, if you think about it, a lot of the work for Lewandowski's goals comes from the players behind him. So as long as we have a natural finisher uh, in that spot, I, I don't think there should be any problem with us still performing at the level we've been performing. Yes, the other teams will go into these matchups knowing that we don't have uh, quite arguably our best player and obviously our best finisher, but I, I don't think that's necessarily going to affect the way that we play. It will literally just be putting a different number in that spot, and obviously it seems like it's going to be uh, Gnabry, and I have every bit of confidence in him, especially with the form he's in. I wish we could play all these matches in London because that would just mean he would score 50 goals in that time span, but obviously that's not the case. So now we get to move on to our analysis of the ruling against Manchester City. So for those that are generally unaware of the situation or you may want to bask in the... Shame of Manchester City fans around you. Allow me to go over a very brief explanation of the situation. So, Manchester City are owned by Sheikh Mansour, who is a member of the Abu Dhabi royal family. They own multiple businesses, including, most importantly, Etihad Airways. They are the sponsor for Manchester City's stadium, their campus for their youth teams, their training facilities, as well as their shirt sponsor. Mansoor bought the club back in about 2008. The shirt sponsorship took an effect about 2009 and about 2011. That deal for the naming rights to the stadium took place. Now, there's a great video out there by the YouTube channel Tifo Football that I highly recommend everybody checking out. And a lot of the information that I'm saying here came from them, so thank you very much in advance for that. So, important thing to note, number one, Manchester City's deal to get their name, to get the Etihad name 
on the shirts, the campus, and the stadium clocked in at about 400 million pounds in 2011 on a 10-year deal. Another important thing to note was at that time, the most expensive naming rights deal for a shirt and for a stadium came with Arsenal and the Emirates at 2.8 million pounds. So we went from 2.8 to 400 million pounds. And there are rules such as financial fair play, which come into place, which say that a, a club's profit cannot go over a certain amount and it had been long assumed that Manchester City had been doing that. Financial fair play regulations kicked in in response to clubs like Paris Saint-Germain and Manchester City being bought out by rich owners, and the hope was that way they couldn't have oil-rich or whatever rich owners coming in and absolutely bringing clubs up the table. See... Man City, see PSG, see Chelsea, see any of those big-name clubs. Now, importantly, that should be noted, the Court of Arbitration of Sport kicked in this punishment. It is the most aggressive punishment on a club in the history of UEFA, in the history of all of club soccer. It is massive, and Financial Fair Play has already sanctioned PSG before they were under investigation and they were fined at the end of the result of that investigation there is no news that PSG will be further investigated as a result of this but with all of that being said at the end of the day Manchester City have been kicked out of the UEFA Champions League for two years and face a 30 million pound fine they will be appealing that through the court of arbitration of sport Man City, all of the staff feel that they are going to possibly win appeal, but it's not exactly sure what that means. So, what does that mean for Manchester City in the meantime? Well, according to ESPN's Gab Marcotti, Man City are set to lose around $150 million each year. They are out of the Champions League through gate receipts, sponsorship deals, future sponsorship deals, as well as that £30 million fine. So after the end of two years, it's possible that they could see losses of £300 million. That is a massive amount for any club. And what that means, for the talent at least, is that a lot of them will be wanting to leave at some point. A lot of them feel that they will win appeal, but that is not set in stone yet. Another side issue is the situation with the Premier League, because... They aren't sure that Manchester City didn't submit the same false accounting reports that they submitted to UEFA also to the Premier League. So they may face punishment further from the FA, which could be as small as a fine and could be as big as relegation to the fourth division of English soccer in League Two on the FL Pyramid. So this affects Bayern in three ways with three specific people, and I'm going to start at the lowest end, Tom, the one that is the least likely to happen. We're starting with Pep Guardiola. He said that he wouldn't leave saying something to the effect of, even if they're down in League Two, we will stick with them. My counter to that is that he, along with other people at Man City, expect that they are going to win on an appeal. Pep Guardiola wants to taste that victory, taste that champagne of winning the Champions League again. He would not be able to do that with a Manchester City that are down in League 2 that have been out for a number of years. Bayern Munich is really the only other club that has been linked to him. I don't see him going to any other club in England. He wouldn't be going back to any club in Spain, especially not Real Madrid. Barcelona seem intent on their current manager, and if he doesn't turn out well, the rumor has been that Xavi will come in and become their manager, which really only leaves two clubs, PSG and Bayern Munich. So my question to you is this. Hansi Flick has been doing well, but Bayern are still in the middle of a coaching search. If Pep Guardiola is an option on the table, do you take him over Hansi Flick? 
There are so many moving parts to that question, but I think it will come down to, I think it's already understood amongst Bayern's front office that the search for a new manager, long-term manager, um, and I can't put enough emphasis on long-term, is still underway. I think there's a general understanding uh, that regardless of how the season finishes, uh, a new manager for a long-term period is going to be needed. Um, whether or not Guardiola would immediately be open, excuse me, would be welcomed with open arms or how smoothly or how easily that process would take place. I, I guess I could just answer this by saying if the opportunity was 100% there and if it were black and white and very clear cut, I think that uh, everyone would welcome him back. And if all of the you know, the figures, so to speak, fell into place, then I think that would be a deal that, that could be reached and we could have this romantic return of Pep Guardiola and we could, you know, have a chance at being prominent in Europe for a, a decent period of time for however long he wants to come back for and perhaps even win the Champions League again. But it, there's just so many things that need to happen for that to take place to where I'm kind of very skeptical of the uh, realism of that, you know, it, I know we were speaking earlier, this is like a very, very um, tangled and intertwined situation with what's going on with Manchester City's uh, ban and their proposed appeal uh, to try and fight this. You know, everything I've read, uh, as you mentioned, the CAS, the Court of Arbitration for Sport, this process is supposed to be entirely more transparent uh, than it is from UEFA. I've, I've seen things on social media and from different reports Ken UEFA used some of the hacked material that was obtained by Der Spiegel in the investigation uh, because UEFA has maintained that that's something that they can't really bring to the evidence table, but uh, there's a lot of controversy as, as far as that. Um, it, it's just one of those things. It's the way, the way I look at it is it's this, as you mentioned, all the reasons why FFP was put in place, I guess basically condensed, you could say, is to just make sure that clubs aren't uh, allowed to spend more more than they make, especially considerably more than they make, as as Man City did. I think that they their echelon of ownership found a loophole uh, in the rules and you know took advantage of it. Whether I guess maybe taking advantage from their perspective might be a bit aggressive of a word or a term to use, uh, but I think they saw the loop loophole there and took the opportunities, is how I would say it. Um, Pep saying he would stay with Man City even if they're in League Two. Um, I mean, that's a massive step down from a manager who wants to be fighting across, you know, Europe and England's and Germany's and Spain's most prestigious trophy. So I'll believe that when I see it. Uh, so <laughs> if everything falls into place, the ban stands um, and there is a, a penalty as far the if the two year or two season ban stands on European competition for Man City um, and there is a points deduction from the Premier League, both for this season and perhaps even previous seasons, uh, and they're relegated a, a couple of leagues, and he can leave. I'm not entirely sure what his contract is like with Man City, but you know, if all of those X's and O's were to present themselves as available, I think that he could come back. Yes, especially considering you know how just going back to the the search before Nico Kovac was hired, all of the prerequisites that Bayern's front office were requiring for the new manager, whether a lot of that had to do with Uli Honus at the time, being a German speaker, having experience in the Bundesliga, having experience in the Champions League, which Nico Kovac didn't really have. You know, so there's a lot that goes into it. Obviously, it might be different now with uh, Rummenigge, Ali Khan stepping into the board, Herbert Heiner, Hasan Salihamidzic. So uh, there's a lot uh, that that needs to be uh, discovered uh, from here until the end of the season, and, and we'll see what happens. I think that uh, I've read somewhere that the decision on the ban from UEFA to Man City has to be reached by July 15th or something like that, so uh, a lot can happen between now and then. The next person that could be affected by this is Jaden Sancho. The current Borussia Dortmund winger has been linked to Manchester City before. He's a former City product that went to Dortmund, and it was long assumed that City would be number one on his list. When he left this summer, the rumors are abounding that he is going to leave this summer, and it was long thought that one of the places that he was going to go to was the Premier League, that he wanted to return to the Prem, the English 
Bourne product wanted to go back home. So it was thought that the top four at the time were Manchester City, Liverpool, Manchester United, and Chelsea. But remove City from that now because their aspirations are a little bit lower. Now we look potentially... Bayern Munich could step in as that fourth place. There have been some rumors kicking around recently that Bayern wants to give a longer look at Jadon Sancho. Tom, what do you think about those, and would you take Jadon Sancho at the club? If the price was right, I don't, I don't think there's any reason why we shouldn't do this. We could easily figure out what the depth would look like. A lot of the arguments from some other Bayern fans might be, well, we have Kingsley Coman. He's coming back to full match fitness. We have Serge Gnabry, who's having a fantastic season. He's also coming back from injury as well. Uh, we still don't know what's going to happen with Coutinho, but it's most likely that we sell him back to Barcelona because there's no way that we would be taking him for 120 million euros over Jadon Sancho, who's likely would cost around 100 million euro as well uh, if he were to come to Bayern too. Uh, but as you mentioned, so much of it will have to do with how the uh, the Manchester City ban from UEFA holds up if their appeal works. If it doesn't, uh, I think if it does work, then he still probably would likely go to Man City or perhaps even Man United or or one of the Manchester clubs. Uh, if it's not any of the other clubs in the Premier League. But realistically, if if the price is right, and if something were to happen with Leroy Sané, you know, we recently put out a report. I actually wrote it myself um, that there's a feeling amongst Bayern's front office that we don't necessarily, you know, quote unquote, need to sign Leroy Sané now, and you know that interest has been reignited in uh, RB Leipzig's Timo Werner, despite the heavy links of him going to Liverpool to play under Jurgen Klopp. Um, in a system that could see either, uh, you know, Firmino or Mane or Salah being shifted around to accommodate the likes of Timo Werner. And, you know, also we've got that uh, that young guy Kai Havertz on the back burner from Bayer Leverkusen as well. So there's a lot, a lot that needs to be uh, assessed. And I have no doubts that our front office are looking at every possible option and are certainly keeping tabs on the Man City situation uh, and, and Jaden Sancho because I think that would be... Um, a very a very lucrative, fantastic move if that opportunity were to present itself. Uh, I don't think it's very realistic though. But if it if it were somewhere, if we could perhaps wriggle the price down just a little bit uh, for whatever reason, using whatever leverage we could, or perhaps even get a swap deal involved, um, I, I think that we could do that. But um, it would just depend on, on all of those factors, which I've just mentioned. And now, finally, the last person, the one that is most likely to be looking at Bayern Munich, is the one that you had just mentioned, Tom. This guy that maybe you have heard before linked to Bayern Munich, a German by the name of Leroy Sane? Leroy Sané, I guess. Anyway, Sané will obviously want to leave Man City now that they won't be in European competition, and it seems dead set, very obvious. The one place that he will want to go is Bayern Munich. But before all the Sané fans that are in the Bayern Munich audience start rejoicing at what I'm about to say, now it is probably more unlikely than ever, that Bayern Munich goes out and gets Sané. For this reason and this reason alone. We had talked before, not necessarily on this pod, but if you read the blog that we are associated with, BavarianFootballWorks.com, and you've been reading us since the beginning of the season, Sané had been linked to us at a low price, at a relatively low price, somewhere between 50 and 65 million euros. There is no way with the financial situation that Manchester City now see that Sané goes for that low of a price. Marcotti said it, about £150 million a year. Manchester City might not have a choice but to offload players in order to make up for that cost. Names like Sergio Aguero, names like Kevin De Bruyne, names like Leroy Sané. But the thing is, Sané might now have to go for an extremely larger fee than what we could have had either in January or late into the summer. I'm thinking 
more in the range of 90 to 100 million. And at that range, we can pretty much count out signing Kai Havertz as well. We could kind of also count out signing Timo Werner as well. Since this report came out, since this ruling came down, I've seen numbers for Sané up to 125 million euros. Tom, if the number for Sané goes above 90 million, do you pass on him? If City's appeal doesn't work and that's the price tag, you 100% pass on him because there's going to be better options uh, available. And it also should be known his contract expires in the end of June in 2021. Uh, so as you were saying, that gives Manchester City, especially because of the fact that they haven't sat down and tried to extend his contract yet as he works his way back from injury uh, and is about to m make his return to action, you know, they haven't tried to do that yet. So with his contract expiring, the last thing they want to do is let him leave on a free, which obviously would not happen uh, with a player of his value anyways. But if that's the price tag and the appeal uh, does not work and the ban holds, there's absolutely no reason to be spending that money uh, on him when we have other options elsewhere, perhaps even Timo Werner, as you mentioned, Kai Havertz, Jaden Sancho, whoever it may be at that point, because as I mentioned, a lot can happen between now uh, and the summer when a decision has to be made on the um, appeal uh, that Manchester City are going to lodge at UEFA. But um, yeah, to answer your question, no. If, um, if the appeal doesn't work, the ban holds, There's there's got to be better, better options elsewhere. But... Um, if the appeal, for whatever reason, works, and then Manchester City try to renew his contract, I think that's when we can go back to the negotiating table um, and try and wriggle that price down, especially depending on how he actually performs uh, when he does return to action for the rest of this season. So, uh, yeah, it's football, this crazy, crazy sport that we live in. And I don't know, like, Jake, can you maybe put your finger on it? I know I could easily bring up the story stream right now, but speculation, as I mentioned earlier, so much more theater in that. Probably, like, almost 70 or 80, 85 stories we've written about this guy. <laughs> like, and it's had every little twist and turn. Uh, the initial reports linking him to us. He's a German superstar, wants to come to us, doesn't make the squad for the uh, the World Cup. Um, you know, all of a sudden tells his entourage, hey, don't play me in the Community Shield against uh, Liverpool. You know, I'm trying to work on this uh, transfer thing to come to Bayern, so please don't play me. Not only does he does Pep Guardiola include him in the matchday squad, he starts him, and it's seven minutes in, he gets a cruciate ligament injury, and then the saga just completely flips 360 degrees, and we all lost our heads here at Bavarian Football Works, and the saga continued, and 60 pieces later... Here we are. <laughs> Conspiracy theory? Pep Guardiola bribed somebody on Something. Liverpool to go in and slide tackle Leroy Sané to destroy his leg so that he wouldn't come to Bayern. Here's the question. Would it surprise you if that's what the actual case was? Oh, it absolutely wouldn't. <laughs> knowing, knowing Pep, knowing Pep, it absolutely would not surprise me. So, of course... As we mentioned, this case is a little is a little fresh. The wound is just beginning to heal for Manchester City and its fans, which, of course, I feel bad for fans of the club that have been following it for years, that have been diehards for a while, even the new ones that just came in and support Manchester City as their one and only club. I always feel bad for the fans in this scenario. I never feel bad for the club owners because you saw this coming. There are many ways to cheat the system, but when you get caught, you fully deserve it. So we are going to wrap this episode up there. We will not be coming out with an episode of Der Ausblick for the upcoming weekend matchup against Hoffenheim because we just did one on them for the last DFB Pokal matchup against Hoffenheim. So therefore, it doesn't make any sense. But we will be coming out with an Ausblick episode for the upcoming Pokal match midweek against Schalke. So you can expect to hear that 
from us, and then after that, you will be able to hear the recap of both the Hoffenheim and Schalke games on a full episode of Bavarian Podcast Works. But until then, you can follow us on Twitter at BavarianFBWorks, follow me on Twitter at Jefferson Fenner, follow Tom on Twitter at TommyAdam71, and be sure to read the latest and greatest Bayern and German soccer content at BavarianFootballWorks.com. So once again, from the podcast division, thank you very much for listening. Please be sure to like, rate, share, subscribe, and download us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and anywhere else you can get your quality audio content. And until next time, we will see you later. Have a good one. Auf Wiedersehen.